1: Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week, we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar i and on the podcast this week, James Heal reads his politics column on Sunak's migration minefield, Michael Simmons says that Scotland's progressive teaching methods have badly backfired, and Mary Wakefield asks, why can't I pray in Westminster Abbey? Up first, James Heal.
0: At last week's Spectator Parliamentarian Awards, Suella Braverman was awarded Disruptor of the Year, in her speech, which seemed to preview her common statement on Wednesday, the former Home Secretary joked that the prize ought, instead, to go to the man responsible for disrupting my plans to cut the immigration numbers and deliver our manifesto pledge, the Prime Minister. Rishi Sunak's assembled supporters didn't laugh. On the issue of migration, battle lines have been drawn between the Tory tribes. The night before Bravan's speech to the Commons, a trio of right-wing groups assembled to plot their strategy. Members were drawn from the European Research Group, the Common Sense Group, and the new Conservatives. Around the same time, the reinvigorated One Nation Caucus filed off a statement signalling their opposition to anything that would undermine Britain's international obligations. Opinions differ as to the strength of each faction. One moderate questions why Sunak spends so much time listening to 15 new Conservatives and not 106 One Nation members. But a right-wing rival compares the One Nation Caucus to an onion, suggesting its layers can be peeled off with enough pressure. The jibing belies the seriousness of the issue. Among 2019 Tory voters, immigration and asylum is currently the number one issue by 11 points. It even trumps concerns over the state of the economy, according to YouGov polling. The reasons are twofold. The constant stream of small boats crossing the Channel and the record net migration figures of 745,000 last year. Net migration might have been less of an issue had the Tories had much to say on illegal migration. But so far, Sunak has failed to stop the boats, despite it being one of his key promises at the beginning of the year. The numbers are down on last year, but the overall impression is that the Tories have not dealt with the problem. The Supreme Court's evisceration of the Rwanda scheme last month has further frustrated Sunak's plans. More than 63,000 migrants have crossed the Channel since the original first flight carrying asylum seekers was due to depart last June. After two previous legislative efforts, Tory hopes to rely on an emergency initiative to fix the policy before next year's election. It's three strikes and you're out, remarks one MP, who is arguing for the strongest possible bill. The current debate centres on whether Britain needs to opt out of the European Convention on Human Rights when it comes to asylum cases. Supporters of Braverman have called for notwithstanding clauses to allow ministers to ignore the Human Rights Act and the ECHR on this issue. Those pushing for the so-called full-fat option point to the range of legal routes they have already tried in order to reduce travel crossings. One advocate rattles off the existing measures to deter small boats, targeting criminal gangs, innovative technology ...fines for those hiring illegal migrants... ...and months of engagement with European Interior Ministries... ...and it's still only down by a third they conclude in exasperation. Even some Tory critics of Sunak... ...accept that he has gone further on this than any Prime Minister before him... ...and admit he has been dealt a pretty bad hand. On this, as with much else... ...the Prime Minister has spent hours trying to strike a balancing act... ...between disapplying sections of the Human Rights Act... ...and instructing UK courts to ignore the ECHR on issues relating to asylum. As for the number of legal immigrants... The government has started unpicking the system that Boris Johnson, arguably Britain's most pro-migrant premier, introduced in early 2020. Immigration Minister Robert Jenrick has publicly described past decisions such as the reduction in the salary threshold for skilled migrants to 25,600 as naive. Initial Home Office assessments certainly underrated the take-up of new schemes. It was forecast in 2020 that fewer than 10,000 migrants would arrive on health and social care visas, more than 100,000 did so last year. Under Johnson, there was also a greater enthusiasm to attach mobility offers to free trade agreements, as shown by the Australian deal and talks with India. Labour has, perhaps wisely, largely refrained from putting forward its own migration proposals in recent weeks. David Cameron's pledge to bring legal arrivals down to the tens of thousands still weighs heavily on the Conservatives to this day. There is little desire on Labour's part to repeat the experience by trumpeting a headline figure. There was some frustration last month when Darren Jones, the Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury, said the party would seek to return net migration to normal levels, which she defined as around a couple of hundred thousand a year. As for small boats, Yvette Cooper has reiterated that she would scrap the Rwanda scheme and instead focus on the criminal gangs. It's not either or, retaliates one government figure. We are already doing that. If CNAT fails to resolve Tory tensions over his Rwanda legislation, then the fate of his flagship bill could be in the hands of the Labour whips. His own party's discipline is fraying. On Monday night, almost 50 Conservative MPs defied the party whip on a series of votes. The row over the infected blood scandal grabbed the headlines as the government's first commons defeat, but 26 Tories also voted against the electric car transition, more than twice as many as previously briefed. Fundamental questions of conservatism being raised. For some Tories, the ECHR represents a great European legacy project, others see it as a foreign court of which we know little. Liberal leavers such as Johnson saw Brexit as the beginning of global Britain, while cultural conservatives hailed it as the end of the global elite. With the polls pointing towards defeat for the Tories next year, it may well be that these debates soon take place in opposition rather than the corridors of power. That was James Heal.
1: Next, Michael Simmons. Scots have, in the past, bragged about having the best education system in the world. Scottish sixth formers study a broader range of subjects and aren't forced to specialise too early. And look at our history, the literature, the enlightenment, our universities, all due to world-class schools. But however true this may once have been, it's hard to make the same claims now. Scottish education is in crisis. Confirmation came this week with the PISA International League Tables for school pupils in 81 different countries. Up to 10,000 pupils in each system sits tests in maths, reading and science, and the results are a gold standard in comparing schools. Scotland has traditionally come close to England and once led the UK in scores for maths. But now Scots have fallen the equivalent of almost one year of learning behind England. Quite an attainment gap for such similar countries. These results were generous to Scotland too. The report cites an upward bias of approximately 9 or 10 points. So the true picture may be even worse. The outcome was described as catastrophic by Lindsay Patterson, Professor Emeritus of Education Policy at Edinburgh University. The 2010 introduction of the Curriculum for Excellence, an overhaul hailed by Nicholas Sturgeon as the very latest in teaching methods, seems to have accelerated the decline. The only consolation for Scotland is that the results are not quite as bad as in Wales. This is not how devolution was supposed to work. Since 1999, the education policies of Scotland and Wales have been decided in Holyrood and Cardiff Bay respectively. The early advocates of devolution thought that within 25 years, local pupils would be leaving their English counterparts behind. Scottish solutions for Scottish problems ran the mantra. Just how different those problems were is an open question, but devolution would test the Home Rule theory. If it worked, England's neighbours would be improving faster. Scotland used its new powers to reject the parent choice agenda. When Tony Blair and later Michael Gove developed self governing academies, schools in Wales and Scotland remained under local authority control. Then the curriculum reform came. Teachers were concerned at what some saw as dumbing down maths by grade inflation, but PISA tests cannot be gamed. The mass results showed that England's pupils have kept steady over the years in spite of lockdowns, but since 2015, Wales has dropped 12 points, equivalent to six months of lost learning, Northern Ireland fell 18, nine months, and Scotland dropped 20 points. While England and Wales saw improvement with their math scores reaching highs in 2018, before lockdown reversed the trend, Scotland has been on a continuous downward slope since 2000, falling 11 points, six months, in reading, and seven points, four months, in science in just the last four years. Newspapers in Scotland now run tips for parents about how to take teaching into their own hands. Having spent my school years during Curriculum for Excellence's rollout at an Edinburgh Comprehensive, I have a fair idea of what went wrong. I count myself lucky to have been in the penultimate cohort to take exams under the old system, but the new teaching methods were already in evidence. Teachers are told to prioritise skills and well-being over the acquisition of knowledge. The premise is that learning is boring and remembering facts, dates and capital cities a waste of time. So Scott saw the old knowledge-based system replaced by ideology fuelled by buzzwords like child-centred, as if the old method of building memory, critical thinking and study was not child-centred. Committing knowledge to memory was replaced with iPad skills, and outwent academic problem solving to make room for learning for sustainability, including how to understand the world, the environment and Scotland's place in it. Scotland's Education Secretary, Jenny Gilruth, tried to pin the blame on COVID's profound impact on our young people. Sturgeon was slower to resume classroom education than Boris Johnson. English schools reopened in June 2020, but Scotland waited until after the summer holidays. As the second wave hit, Sturgeon was quick to announce that schools would reopen only for vulnerable children and those whose parents were key workers, while the rest would make do online. In a school year of just 190 days, every missed day counts. But things were going wrong in Scottish schools long before COVID. I suspect Ruth knows where the real blame rests. Back when she was a teacher at my old school in Edinburgh, she didn't disagree with her colleague's verdict on the overhaul. One of them called it a slow-motion car crash. Other teachers dubbed it the curriculum for excrement, a verdict that has not been contradicted by the results. It puts a big focus on coursework, which is far more subjectively judged than exams. Researchers looking into the new system describe a culture of performativity among the teachers under pressure to raise attainment. They also found worsening exam performance, despite pupils studying a narrower range of subjects, a reform designed to improve results. It seems clear that if the old system was brought back, there could be a significant improvement. Eric Hanushek, A Stanford academic has drawn a correlation between PISA results and economic prosperity, which he says shows that no investment delivers a greater return than education. But over the past decade of Scottish educational decline, spending per pupil in real terms has risen by 13%. Meanwhile, England's funding has been reduced slightly, but its schools have leapt up the league tables. If devolution were an experiment, the conclusion might well be that it's hard to find a direct link between spending and pupil attainment, and that teaching methods make a big difference. After almost two decades of progressive teaching reform, Scotland is no longer an example to the world, but a lesson in what not to do. That was Michael Simmons. And finally, Mary Wakefield.
2: In the school chapel every morning, bored and tired, I'd rest my forehead on the back of the chair in front and try to doze. The chapel chairs were dignified and sturdy, each with its own wooden box for hymn books and a flat top carved with the name of a generous old girl. As morning chapel progressed, that name would slowly etch itself into my forehead so that sometimes, even at lunchtime, I still had the name of a past and more perfect pupil stamped backwards above my eyebrows. This is very much how I feel now about the Church of England. When you're brought up in an institution, however soporific, it leaves its mark on you. I converted to Catholicism nearly two decades ago, but I'm still imprinted with the C of E. I'm at home with flagstones and Lady Vicars, and my mind is full of the strange images I formed as a child, listening to the Book of Common Prayer. I am not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. I don't regret converting, but I find it sad that my English son, with Anglican grandparents, will never know Anglican things, So I sing him prayers from the hymn book at bedtime, He Who Would Valiant Be, Dear Lord and Father of Mankind. And the other day when we were passing Westminster Abbey, I decided to visit. There are few London sights as lovely as the west face of Westminster Abbey lit up by late afternoon sun. And as we approached the gate, I felt a rush of patriotic pride. My boy would know his inheritance, I decided. We would kneel down here with Isaac Newton and Elizabeth I. It's non-stop fun being my son. A dour-looking man, in uniform, stood in the entrance by the abbey railings, but I walked up to him feeling confident. It's thirty quid to get into the abbey for visitors, blessed are the poor, but the rules allow for free private prayer. This was a chance to show my child that we are still, at heart, a Christian country. We're here to light a candle, I said to the man. Can we come in? His face did not melt into a welcoming smile. I said less confidently. Private prayer is allowed, isn't it? Your bag's too big, he said. I took off my backpack and looked at it. Normal size? Just the same size as those carried by every one of the 30 quid tourists. Water bottle, jumper, laptop, snack. Is it a security thing? I asked. Do you want to look inside? No, the bag is too big. You can't come in. Well, can I leave it somewhere? The man looked at another near-identical man standing opposite and some silent communication passed between them. He turned back. There's even song at 5 p.m. every evening. But we're just passing now. In other circumstances, I admire a man who can look down into the upturned, expectant face of a child and hold to the letter of the law. In this case, I felt pathetically heartbroken. I know what the Abbey's communication team will say, that it costs 14 million a year to run and that visitors have been asked to cough up for centuries. The abbey is a royal peculiar, they'll point out, under the authority of the king, and more for ceremony than prayer. But this was once one of the most powerful churches in Catholic Christendom. Our history is here. Edward the Confessor, Saint and King is here. Surely he'd enjoy a prayer before 5pm. Why does the Church of England so routinely make a person feel certifiable for trying to believe? On the upside, as we turned away, I had a useful change of heart. Earlier this year, there was outrage over plans to put on silent discos in cathedrals across the country. A few have already taken place. Hundreds of student types bobbing about in the aisles, listening to tunes on headphones. The next great dance date is in Canterbury Cathedral, not a Royal peculiar, in February next year. I have in the past defended the idea of a silent disco, or at least thought, why not, The E's experienced team are so touchingly excited by the thought of all those young people. But it strikes me now you can't serve two masters. If you put the brand or the funding or the experience or even the planet over the faith, you're contributing to your own demise. I went back to the Abbey on Monday, alone with a smaller bag this time and approached with less confidence, feeling very much as I do at the easy check-in desk. Will the bag fit in the overhead locker? Is it small enough for prayer?" The doormen men were gone, and a smart-looking lady was in their place. "'Yes, you can pray for free, but you must stay on these wooden chairs by the entrance,' I asked. Isn't there some sort of side chapel?' The woman looked at me with sudden understanding. I was one of those prayer hustlers, trying to cop a look at Chaucer for free. Without saying a word, she ushered me briskly out into the cloister, where we walked the length of the nave outside. If she could have put a hostage hood over my head, I think she would. We re-entered and made for a door by the south transept at breakneck speed. And then I was alone in St Faith's Chapel. I don't quite have the words to describe it, except to say, although there wasn't a tomb in sight, I'd have happily sat there all day. The abbey was once a monastery. I hadn't known that, and this was once the monk's vestry. On my way out... I kept my eyes lowered in acknowledgement of my non-paying status. I did by chance catch sight of Thomas Hardy's name on a plaque as I passed, though, which must have been worth at least 50p. And
1: that's everything for this week. If you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine for more of the same? I'm Oscar Gredminton, and I hope you join us again next week.